Well, good morning, everyone. It is um, good to be with you this morning. For those of you that don't know me, as John said, my name is Megan, and I have the great privilege of being a part of the preaching team here at Alice Springs Baptist Church. And this morning, I get the privilege of uh, continuing on in our Sermon on the Mount series. It's lovely to see some new faces and some people back from holidays. And if you've missed the last three weeks of this series, I would really encourage you to jump online um, and listen. Because I know for me, as I've been dwelling in the passage we're looking at this morning and in this, I guess the one of the most famous speeches in history, um, I have really been challenged in the lens that I use when I look at Jesus' words here. And that's been partly through what I've been reading myself, but also through what Gavin and David Blackman have already shared. We'll talk a little bit about that later, but I'd encourage you to jump online. And if you're new, the sermons are all available on the website or on the podcast app. If you look for Alice Springs Baptist Church, you can grab any of the sermons from the AM or PM services. Today we're going to be focusing, as it says up here, on Matthew 5, 21 to 26. If you know this passage, it's a fairly confronting one about murder and anger and contempt. And it's the first in a series of comments that Jesus makes about the law as people understood it in that day, from murder to adultery to divorce and the treatment of others. But before we launch in, I want to share with you something that I am fairly passionate about, and that is lists. I love a good list. Who else here loves a good list? Yeah, we've got some few list lovers here. Some of you know that we went away on a family holiday just before Christmas and into Christmas. We took our boys and our caravan down for a week at the beach and then we went to have Christmas with family and we went to Victoria, which means you have to pack for every season. And so as a mum, any any mums or dads who have packed for kids know it is a stressful situation to pack for kids, especially when we've got a child with an allergy, so making sure we had all the right food and everything as well. Man, that month leading up, there was a lot of mental load going on in the background going, have I got to be ready? Have we got everything we need? And I had this epiphany one day, I'm like, I just need a list. And so came forth this epic list. And you know, I especially love a list with a tick box because when you just do a little task, you get to tick it off. And I cannot tell you the deep satisfaction that I get from ticking off a job on a list. Anyone else who put their hand up before will know what I mean. There is just this sense of accomplishment. You may be no closer to the end goal, but you have ticked a job off your list. And man, that feels good. As a society, we we love lists. We love the stepwise guide, you know, the five steps to financial freedom or better relationships. We love it. If it's a stepwise guide and I can tick off a step and go, I've done that, I feel good about myself. There's some affirmation in that. We love this. But I have realised that as someone who loves lists, I have a tendency to look at the Bible and at Jesus' teachings in search of a list. What's the list? What are the boxes that I can check off? Because if I check off a box, I'm going to feel really good about myself. Um, And we're going to look at this passage this morning twice. Once through the eyes of a list lover, which, if I'm honest, is the natural way that I approach this text. And then again through the eyes of looking at it from the perspective of the kingdom of God with that at the forefront. And we're going to see the difference that that switch in perspective makes. So let's have a look at at this passage together. You have heard that it was said. Now I'm just going to pause there because in this series of comments that Jesus makes on murder and then on um, adultery and uh, divorce, he starts with comments 
either exactly like this or essentially the same, you've heard that it was said. And in saying that statement, he's making a distinction between what's written in the scriptures and what was being perpetuated and spoken about by the teachers of the law and the rabbis in the day. Because as Gavin mentioned a bit last week, what happened with the law was the law was given to Moses and then people sought to interpret the law and apply it to everyone's lives. And that was the teachers of the law and the rabbis, they tended to refine and reprocess and then impose, essentially, these teachings on the people of the day. That was so, so that was what Jesus was talking about. He's talking about what the teachers of the law and the rabbis were saying, were imposing on the people who Jesus was speaking to, remembering he's speaking to the crowd, the riffraff, the people that aren't <laughs> those who are essentially ticking all the boxes. You've heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder. Anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. And just again, to talk about the, the teachings were imposed and they were imposed as a form of judgment. Here's what you must do to be right with God. If you tick these boxes, if you do these things, then Otherwise, there'll be judgment. But if you do all these things, you'll be all right. This was sort of what the teachers of the law were trying to get their head around. But essentially what happened was that these teachings have become about what to do and what not to do to appease God, about who was in and who was out. The emphasis of the discussion for the rabbis and the teachers would therefore have been what constitutes murder. So, the, the, you know, it's very clear in Exodus in the Ten Commandments, you shall not murder. So what does murder mean? And that was the discussion that these rabbis would have had. You know, is unintentional uh, homicide, is, is that murder? And in fact, there's a precedent for this even as far back as Deuteronomy where it talks about setting up cities of refuge for those who might accidentally kill a, a, another human and needed a place to escape from payback. So there was already some discussion about that and the rabbis and the teachers of the law were speaking into this debate about what was murder. And so the list that we kind of have is this, do not murder. And maybe there's a bit of a question that the teachers of the law and the rabbis and are speaking into about what manslaughter and indirect homicide, kind of where they fit in that. And I mean, as someone who lives in Alice Springs in Central Australia, you know, we've, we've had a first-hand kind of experience about how important these definitions are in a court of law in terms of the consequences that are faced by people um, in a legalistic sense, understanding exactly what is meant by murder is important. And so Jesus' listeners would have expected him to go on and give his take as a rabbi on what constitutes murder. But he doesn't. Instead, Jesus says, but I tell you, anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. This is, this is kind of like a, whoa, hang on, we were talking about murder a second ago and now you're telling me not to be angry? Again, anyone who says to his brother or sister, Raha, which means essentially nitwit or bonehead or idiot, anyone who says you fool, and it's important to understand that you fool uh, in Jesus' day was a much more significant insult to the way that we flippantly use the term fool. It wasn't about calling someone a bit silly. It was essentially saying someone was absolutely ridiculous. And in fact, it was more a slight on someone's moral character. Proverbs talks about, you know, the fool who returns to their vomit. This was the kind of slight you were giving someone. And uh, in the New Living Translation, it translates that you fool as anyone who curses someone. One of the uh, commentaries I read talked about the fact that when you call someone raka, you are insulting their intelligence. You're calling them an idiot, saying they have no brains. But when you're calling someone a fool, you are insulting their character. You're saying they're deranged or psychopathic or whatever else. Wow. 
And he goes on and says, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still together on the way or your adversary may hand you over to the judge and the judge may hand you over to the officer and you may be thrown into prison. Truly I tell you that you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. We'll talk through the significance of Jesus' words in a bit more detail on our second take. But as someone who loves lists and who seeks a list from this teaching, the list that we come up with is a bit daunting. Now we don't just have do not murder and maybe we need to unpack that a bit, but we have do not become angry with a brother or sister, which in the broadest perspective of the Bible we understand to mean really anyone. Do not call people names regarding their intellect. Do not call people names regarding their character. Reconcile with all people. Settle matters quickly. And I don't know about you, but I look at this list and I don't feel closer to the kingdom of God. Because if we're honest, there are all times that we have been angry with our brother or sister. We know it doesn't just mean biological brothers and sisters, but for those of you with siblings, if you're honest, can you really say you've never been angry at your brother or your sister? I have two boys who I love very much and who love each other very much, but we are entering the phase of sibling rivalry and I now wear as a mum a peacemaker hat regularly trying to intercede in conflict because part of our broken human nature is that we get frustrated, we covet, we get angry at each other. And it doesn't mean that we shouldn't seek to change that and to tick these boxes where we can. But when we focus on the tick boxes, we don't find ourselves moving towards the kingdom of God, but rather sitting here feeling really judged and really far away, which is not at all what Jesus was talking about. There is an important lesson that comes out of this. And if you read it with a list lover's lens, this is the lesson that you might take away. We all fall short. We need Jesus. If we're honest, none of us are ticking all those boxes all the time. We might try, but we're not. We're not. We all fall short and we all need Jesus. And that is an important lesson from this passage. But I believe that there is something more inspiring, more challenging, more able to change our day-to-day decisions that Jesus is actually getting at in this passage if we understand it in the way I believe he was intending it to be understood. I believe there is a deeper revelation that Jesus has for us in these words. And to understand this, we need to take off our list lover's lens and look again at this passage in the context and in the light of the bigger message of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount and indeed his entire earthly ministry. Remember that Jesus was talking to a group of people who already knew they weren't ticking the boxes. They already knew they were falling short. And so if we limit Jesus' message to this, then he would have been no different to the teachers of the law in making people feel that they weren't right with God, in giving them boxes to tick. And it would have been inconsistent with the invitation we have seen him offering already through this teaching and we see him offering throughout the rest of his earthly ministry. And so I want to step back even before Jesus started his famous Sermon on the Mount. And just after Jesus' temptation, when he begins his earthly ministry, it says this, it says, from that time on, that is for the rest of the time that Jesus was walking on this earth, he began to preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. 
That is the crux of Jesus' earthly ministry. And it's the crux of his Sermon on the Mount. And we've seen that already in the past three weeks. Three weeks, Gavin spoke about the Beatitudes. And he spoke about the fact that there is a risk for us to see this as a list of to-dos. That if I want to be blessed, I need to be more poor in spirit. I need to mourn more. I need to be more persecuted. But that's actually not what Jesus was talking about. This was an invitation to people who found themselves feeling far from the kingdom of God. The mourners, the meek, those who would have been told they didn't make the cut, who were far away. But actually Jesus says, you are blessed, blessed, close to God. This was an invitation for those who felt far from the kingdom to realise that in fact the kingdom was not so far after all. Two weeks ago, David Blackman spoke about what it means to be salt and light in the kingdom of God. He spoke about the nature of salt being a preserving agent and that as Christians we have the opportunity to preserve the culture around us from moral decay. But he also spoke about the invitation that is held in Jesus' words. He says, you are the salt of the earth, you are the light of the world. Not you will be when you tick all the boxes, but you are. And in that comes an invitation to actively reflect the presence and grace of God in this world. That was the invitation. And last week, Gavin kind of drew all of that together by talking about the purpose of the law. Jesus said, I have come to fulfill the law and the prophets. And the law and the prophets at their core were about inviting people to become a kingdom of priests. The purpose of the law was to build a priesthood, people that would reflect the kingdom of God, that would show what God is like. Initially, for the Israelites, to the nations around them, blessed to be a blessing, and then for us as people living in this world but not of this world, actively reflecting the grace and heart of God in a broken world. This then, to embrace the already but not yet kingdom of heaven, is at the core of Jesus' earthly teaching and ministry. And so let's look at this passage again with that in mind, considering what this looks like as an invitation for us to understand the nature of the kingdom of God and what it looks like for us to participate in the invitation that Jesus is giving us. He says, You've heard it said to people long ago, You shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Murder doesn't just happen. If I measured whether I was reflecting the kingdom of God or not in my treatment of others by whether I had murdered them or not, I would fall terribly short of God's heart. If murder was the plumb line with which I measured whether I was being salt and light, we would sorely miss the mark. If this is the one tick box we're left with, then the law has failed in its purpose to create a kingdom of priests and of people that reflect the heart of God. But murder doesn't just happen. It starts somewhere. People don't wake up in the morning and say, oh, I love my family, I, I, I love my husband, I think I'll go and kill someone today. No, it comes from a place of bitterness and anger and distress and broken relationship. There are deeper issues at play here that take us away from the heart of God that need to be unpacked and understood if we are to truly embrace what it means to be salt and light in this world. Anger, when it is left, when it is directed at others, 
others who are made in the image of God, is destructive. Destructive to our relationship with God, destructive to our relationship with others, and destructive to our relationship with ourselves. It eats away at the core of who we are and how we are designed to live. When we allow anger to remain, we begin to justify our anger. This self-righteousness cycle begins. We justify our anger, our bitterness and our pain. We say, yes, but I am right here. This person's clearly done me wrong. I am allowed to be angry at them. Anyone in my situation would be angry at them. Now, I want to make a really important distinction here between the anger that Jesus is talking about in this passage, which is that self-righteous anger that tears other people down, in contrast to to what would be considered truly righteous anger. Truly righteous anger seeks to uphold the worth of others and is birthed from a holy discontent when those who are vulnerable are mistreated. Truly righteous anger does not fester, does not lead to bitterness and is usually not directed at others, but it drives us towards God to seek solutions. That's not the anger Jesus is talking about here. He's talking about the anger that festers, that leads to bitterness, that becomes directed at others and is intended for their harm. And that anger does not belong in the kingdom of God. It does not reflect the heart of God. In many ways, we live in a society these days where anger is condoned. And we often confuse anger with passion. We're encouraged to get riled up about things. Clickbait is designed to make you feel angry about something, angry enough to want to read more. Social media fuels the self-righteous cycle. People post up their hurt, their bitterness, their anger to find people who are just like them, which is what social media does, to affirm their anger and their frustration and their bitterness. And so the cycle continues. You only have to look at Facebook groups like Action for Alice to see the kind of anger that gets aired and encouraged and fostered. Jesus calls out anger for the destructive force that it is. He also calls out contempt. So I said earlier that the idea of calling someone raka is really showing contempt for their intellect and calling someone a fool is showing contempt for their character. Now, contempt is defined as the feeling that a person or a thing is worthless and beneath consideration. So when you're angry at someone, you say, you are worthy of my frustration, my venom, my hurt. Contempt says, you are not worthy of me even thinking about you. You're an idiot. Why would I pay any attention to what you say? You're a fool. You have no moral standing. Why would I even consider what you have to say? This is an equally destructive lens to view people with. Because when we show contempt for others, we are showing contempt for God's creation. People made in the image of God and we miss the heart of the kingdom of God. Dallas Willard is a a theologian and a writer and he wrote a book called The Divine Conspiracy. And in The Divine Conspiracy, he spends a bit of time talking about the Sermon on the Mount, in particular these uh, kind of teachings here. And I, I just wanted to read this excerpt to you because I think it really captures well the harm that contempt and anger can do. This is what he writes. He says, To belong is a vital need based in the spiritual nature of the human being. Contempt spits on this need. 
And like anger, contempt does not have to be acted out in special ways to be evil. It is inherently poisonous. Just by being what it is, it is withering to the human soul. But expressed in a contemptuous phrase or in the equally powerful gesture or look, it stabs the soul to its core and deflates its powers of life. It can hurt so badly and destroy so deeply that murder would almost be a mercy. It is withering to the human soul. The Apostle Paul uh, has a bit to say about some of this um, in his book to the Ephesians, which was a community um, that wasn't necessarily, by and large, in the secular sense, reflecting the heart of God and where the church really needed to be different, <laughs> countercultural. And he says to the church in, in Ephesus, In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry and do not give the devil a foothold. I love that imagery in terms of the danger of anger. When anger festers, the devil gets a foothold in our lives. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth, but only what is helpful for building others up. You see the contrast here to contemptuous phrases, to calling someone rucker or fool or morally incap incapable. Only what is useful for building others up according to their needs that it will benefit those who listen. This is what the kingdom of God looks like. To speak only words that will build others up. To deal with our anger so the devil doesn't get a foothold. Because when we allow anger in, we give the devil a foothold. So what then are we to do? And when we understand it through this lens, Jesus' following words make a bit more sense. He says, Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar... Now, to offer a gift at the altar at this point in history was a um, deeply sacred act. And the teachers of the law would have been teaching that nothing should take priority over that because this was your opportunity to commune with God. So that should be your absolute first priority. But Jesus is saying, if you're doing that and you remember that your brother has something against you, that you have wronged your brother in some way, been angry at them, shown contempt for them, then leave your gift there and go and deal with that. Go and be reconciled with them and then come and offer your gift. This is surprising but perhaps should not be as even the prophets and King David spoke about this. You know, in Hosea it says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. And in Psalm 51, David in his repentance from his um, actions around Bathsheba says, you do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O oh God, is a broken spirit, dealing with a broken relationship as best as I can. A broken and contrite heart, God, you will not despise. Restoring relationship and making peace is a priority to God and it should be to us also as we embrace his call and his invitation to be part of his kingdom. He goes on to say, settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are together on the way or your adversary may hand you over to the judge and the judge may hand you over to the officer and you may be thrown into prison. Truly I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. I am aware that for some here, thinking about the court system and broken relationship comes with the pain of lived experience. For others it's a kind of a foreign concept. But I think we can all agree that court is not a place where only words that are useful for building up 
are used. Court is often a place where anger and contempt are aired. Moreover, it is possible that for some of us it's not a physical court that Jesus is talking about but a spiritual one. Because when we don't deal with anger and settle things quickly on the way, we are already imprisoned in one way. The devil has a foothold and we are on our way to being handed over to our adversary. Do not give the devil a foothold, as Paul says in Ephesians. The one disclaimer here is that there may be a role for legal action, especially where the safety of ourselves or others are involved. And that's not what Jesus is talking about. He's not saying never take anyone to court in any circumstance. But what he's saying is make peace a priority and where you can, as far as it depends on you, restore a relationship. Where someone holds something against us, we need to do what we can to make it right. In Romans 12, 18, it says, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Recognising that sometimes it doesn't depend on us. It depends on someone else <laughs> coming to the fore. But as far as it depends on us, we need to do what we can to reflect the heart of God and make peace a priority. For it is only when we deal with our anger and our contempt and prioritise peace, leaving the rest to God, that we can truly reflect the presence and grace of God in this world where we can truly be the holy priesthood that we are invited to be. In Hebrews, it, it just explains this really well. It says, try to be at peace with everyone and try to live a holy life because no one will see the Lord without it. This is our witness, <laughs> to live differently, to prioritise peace, to deal with the anger and contempt when they come up in our lives and deal with them quickly. So, repent, Jesus says. This is his message. For the kingdom of heaven is near. We all fall short. We need Jesus. That is still an important lesson. But through Jesus, we are invited to be part of his family, his kingdom, a priesthood, given the opportunity to reflect his heart in a broken world. And the anger that breeds contempt has no part here. Church, if this is to be our lived reality, then we need to be aware of, alert to and rapid in dealing with anger and contempt when they surface in our lives. Do not let anger and contempt get a foothold. Instead, as far as it depends on you, make peace a priority as you seek to reflect God's grace and seek to celebrate his image in each person. So my challenge this morning for you is to ask yourself these two questions. The first is, how are anger and or contempt playing out in your life? And the second is, how will you prioritise peace this week? Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that you invite us to be a part of your kingdom, that we are worthy to be considered um, as part of your family and your kingdom because you have made us worthy. And that you have given us instructions through the Bible, through your word, to understand what the kingdom of God looks like and what it looks like for us to live set apart, holy, different, a priesthood, salt and light for you. Help us, Lord, to recognise where anger has a foothold in our lives.
and to deal with it quickly. Give us courage, Lord, where we need to apologise, to make peace as far as it depends on us. God, help us to trust you with the rest when it doesn't just depend on us. Knowing, God, that you have done all that is needed and that in your hands, uh, God, justice will ultimately be served. But let us, Lord, be reflections of your heart by dealing with anger and by speaking words that are useful for building others up. May we draw people towards your kingdom and recognise your image in them, we pray. Amen.